Welcome to the Faculty Podcast, brought to you by RTS Washington, part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm a president and professor of Old Testament here at RTS Washington. I'm joined by our academic dean and professor of New Testament, Tommy Keene, and instructor in New Testament and senior pastor at New City Presbyterian Church. Paul Jean, and we have a special treat today. We have a guest with us, one of our other visiting uh, lecturers, Randy Newman, Dr. Randy Newman, and he's going to talk to us a little bit about the field in which he teaches here at RTS, and that's evangelism. But we want to just we want to have the conversation range beyond that as well, and kind of hear more about what brought him to where he is now both teaching at RTS and also as a senior teaching fellow at the C.S. Lewis Institute here in the Washington, D.C. area. And that's actually where I first got to know Randy is teaching over there and, and, and crossing paths with him. So, Randy, you've done a lot of work on evangelism. You've done some interesting work. I think this was the topic of your uh, dissertation on conversion and conversion accounts, and that's published in your book, Unlikely Converts. First of all, let me welcome you to our podcast. And secondly, can you tell us a little bit about how you came to where you are on this topic of evangelism? Sure, sure. It's great to be with you. Thanks so much. Uh, maybe maybe uh, the quick short answer of how I got to this point about evangelism is because I'm bad at it. Um, uh, I, I'm a very reluctant evangelist. I'm, I, I struggle with it a whole lot. And so as a struggler, I've had to think about it a whole lot and wrestle with it and experiment with it a lot. Um, also, well, my, my route of coming to faith, I think, plays a very big part of it. I grew up in a Jewish home in the suburbs of New York and very, very skeptical and certainly not inclined to believe in Jesus. If anything, I had been trained and warned to stay away from those horrible anti-Semitic Christians and certainly to stay away from a very anti-Semitic book called the New Testament. So it was against all sorts of odds and opposition uh, that I came to faith in the sophomore year in college. And then uh, eventually I graduated. I worked as a music teacher for a while and then joined the staff of Campus Crusade. And for how, however we want to think about the sovereignty of God, I was, I was always assigned to campuses where all the typical campus crusade strategies didn't work. <laughs> uh, they were just much harder and much more difficult. And so I would, I would delight and hear lovely, uh, encouraging success stories of what God was doing in the Midwest and the South. But I went to Temple University, a large urban school in Philadelphia. Then I was on staff in Pittsburgh and then Baltimore and now Washington, D.C., and again, all, all the standard stuff just didn't work. So I had to experiment and try things or, I don't know, um, um, get a different job. Yeah. Wow. So that that's interesting. So you have a kind of non, I, I'm not sure if there's a traditional uh, Christian story, but it's kind of a non-traditional Christian story, right? The way you got to where you are. Okay. So you're out there doing ministry. You're noticing that the four spiritual laws aren't working the same way on your campus as they did elsewhere. That would, would that have been the right, the same time period. Sure. That's exactly right. Yes. Yeah. All right. So how are you, 
as you're kind of experimenting with what's going on in the campuses around you, what, what are the kinds of things you're thinking about? What, what are you taking into consideration? What's, what's working? Are you just throwing stuff against a wall and seeing what sticks? How are, how are you going about that? I mean, I, I speak that this particularly as people, you know, as our pastors are going out into fields that are, uh, you know, are going to very much have the same experience. Mm-hmm. And how do you approach that as an evangelist? Well, so I, I shared about how, um, being on campuses where things didn't work. You know, failure is a very good thing um, in ministry. Uh, it, it forces you to depend really a whole lot more on God and less on your past success and less on methodology that just works. A- after a while, it, it's easy to, to really be trusting more primarily in the methodology or the tools or the booklets. And so the fact that I was in places where none of that stuff worked was actually a, a very helpful blessing. Um, it didn't feel that way at the time, though, I can tell you that. But I, I think the other thing was, um, coming from a Jewish background, I started having opportunities to uh, train people in churches and also campus settings in Jewish evangelism. And I would I, I started saying more and more that um, with Jewish people, culturally, dialogue and back and forth conversation, even almost to the point of what might sound like argument, that's very culturally Jewish. And so I, I, I looked at my training in evangelism, and if I'm honest, the model that I was trained in seemed to assume that I, the Christian, would do all of the talking or, or most of the talking. Uh, you know, I would read through this booklet, I would go through a presentation, and I would ask a few questions, but I really only wanted the non-Christian to give a one-word answer. Yes, no, uh-huh. And um, and I just said, you know, culturally, that's not the way Jewish people communicate. So I started saying more and more, you know, with, with Jewish evangelism, talking to Jewish people, you've got to draw them out and you, you've got to let them do most of the talking and make it much more of a back and forth kind of thing. And I started hearing people say to me, they would come up to me afterwards and they said, that was very helpful. Thank you. But, you know, that's not just true of only Jewish people. That's that's true of more and more people, especially younger people. Uh, you know, this is when people were first talking about the rise of postmodernism. And, um, you know, they would say, you know, in postmodern times, it, it's much more of a, a dialogue. Um, and then I started, you know, reading a little bit more carefully the scriptures and looking at the way Jesus interacted with people. And uh, certainly there were times that he preached and he did all the talking, but in his interaction with people, it was a lot, a lot more of uh, asking questions and then particularly um, answering questions with questions, not answering questions with answers. And that just sparked a whole bunch of ideas of things to experiment at first at uh, Towson State in Baltimore, and then uh, all of the campuses that we worked on here in in Washington area. Well, Randy, thanks for being on, and I love everything you've shared. Um, Going back to what you shared earlier, uh, you began by saying, uh, by admitting uh, humbly, uh, I got involved with evangelism because I wasn't good at it. And that's so refreshing because, you know, we're in a culture that's all about be true to the real you, right? Mm -hmm. And if that were the case, then so much of what Jesus calls us to do, we would simply disregard because 
I, I speaking for myself, so much of what the Bible commands us to do is foreign to my nature, you know, and so I am so encouraged by that. And I hope that that comment alone would really challenge um, our listeners to ask, like, have I just set this aside because I'm not good at it? That comment also reminded me of um, this book that Malcolm Gladwell wrote. Um, I forget what it's called, but it's the, I think it's called Outliers. Yes, and he yes. basically argues that we have this view that some people are just good at things and other people are not. And while I think there's something to be said of some innate talent, the reality is we get better at things when we first admit, hey, I'm not very good at this. And so therefore, let me do exactly what you did. Let me think about this. And let me take steps towards growing. And so I really appreciated that first comment. And even what you're saying here, um, I have found the same. And that's one of the reasons why I, I think some might disagree here and I can understand why. But I also think that's why when you preach, it's helpful to have some dialogical tone because that seems to help um, people like be open to hearing the faith. Yeah, and a, a couple of thoughts. There are there are some people called by God to the office of an evangelist. I mean, we see that in Ephesians 4. So there are some people who are evangelists. And I think most of them find it very easy and natural. They 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 can't imagine not evangelizing. And and those are usually the people who write books about it and who speak about it and just make the other 98% of Christians feel guilty. <laughs> and, and so that was me for the first 10 years on staff of Campus Crusade, founded by Bill Bright, who he was this amazingly anointed evangelist. And, you know, he had to talk to everybody he sits next to on a plane. I don't. <laughs> In fact, I, I really love my noise-canceling headphones. That's what I love on a plane. So for a very long time, it, there was this idea of, oh, anybody can do this. Anybody can be like this. Uh, and that was Bill Bright's message. If you can read a small booklet, you can share the gospel. Well, okay, yes. But I think for a long time, I thought, well, someday I'm going to be like that. And then it hit me at some point of, and again, studying the scriptures, there are some people who are evangelists, but I think that that's a very small minority. But all believers are called to be witnesses and like Paul told Timothy to do the work of an evangelist. And, and for me, that was kind of radical of, oh, maybe this is never going to be comfortable. Maybe this is never going to be easy. Can God use me anyway? Sure. Yeah. Because the power is in the power of the gospel and the Holy Spirit, not my smoothness or how comfortable I am. Um, I even share this often, that very often I have to confess the sin of worshiping comfort. It's a favorite idol. I, I like, uh, like non-hassle living, and evangelism doesn't fit anywhere near that. So, so sometimes evangelism, for me, starts with, Lord, help me to overcome this love I have of ease and be, be more concerned about your name and your glory than my comfort, which is very painful, by the way. I, I made it sound not quite so painful, but it's yeah. Someone related to this is, you know, you mentioned, I, I think Christians have this exaggerated view of the outcome of evangelism. Like, okay, here I am, I'm going to engage this person. 
while I'm on the plane from New York to California. And when we depart, this person's not a believer. And then after, by the time we're done, he, he's a believer. And that's really the yes. case. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, Randy, I think one of the great points that you've already made is, um, I think it was Greg Kokel. He's an apologist. He makes this mm -hmm. really helpful point that sometimes when we share, maybe by asking a question, all we're doing is placing a pebble in a person's like um, shoe. So that it just forces them actually to stop. And, you know, within the providence of God, maybe that's the role we're supposed to play. So I think that, I think more Christians would be receptive to doing the work of evangelism if they understood that generally they're just going to play a small part, you know, and this makes sense when you look at most people's conversions, rarely was it the case, even if it looks like looks like it's superficially that it was one person in one event. Usually that one person or one event represents the culmination of many things that God did over the years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right, right. So, so some of that can be aided um, if people think really deeply about their own conversion, their own coming to faith. Were there gradual plateaus along the way. Now, uh, again, for, for people who come to faith at a very young age, that may be difficult for them to see. Um, but, then, but so for them, it might be looking more of, well, how have I grown? Hasn't that been a gradual incremental increase? So, so that can help some of us. So looking back of, oh, there was that conversation. That was really strategic. But that was three and a half or four years before I actually became a Christian. And then there was that event. Oh, you know, so it's it's looking back through a different lens. So th that I think can be very helpful for us. And then there, there are so many incomplete stories in the Gospels. And I think we have to grow to appreciate them. There, there are all these encounters Jesus has with people. And Sometimes they come to a, an understanding that he's the Messiah and they, 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 you know, they have a kind of conversion. But very often it's he interacts with this person and then we, we never hear from that person again. Or I, I just think the most beautiful display is the story of Nicodemus. We meet him in John chapter three, and he kind of seems like he's not really getting it. I mean, he's asking a lot of questions. You know, I mean, how, how can this be? I mean, can a man, you know, go into his mother's womb again? He's like, he's like not understanding it. And then that scene just ends kind of suddenly. It's like, wait, wait a minute, the, the camera shifted. Um, but then we then we see him again in chapter seven. Is it seven or nine? Seven. And well, he's kind of raising his hand in a meeting, sort of saying, oh, wait a minute, don't we have a law? And it sounds like he's sort of moving, but I can't quite tell. And then we see him again at the end of the gospel, and he's with Joseph of Arimathea taking down Jesus's body off the cross. And uh, we're told that Joseph of Arimathea has become a believer. We're still not totally told about Nicodemus, but man, if ever there was a uh, an embodiment, an incarnation of what Jesus told Nicodemus, that when someone is born again, it's like the wind. Isn't, isn't Nicodemus's story like, okay, wind, I, I, I can't quite see it. I, I, I don't really know where it's coming from, but there's no doubt in my mind something's going on here. And, and so I think if we can see ourselves of, okay, Lord, you've placed me in this person's life. What can I say? What can I do? Where can I point them? 
that might move them along. And then, Lord, would you bring other people in their lives who will continue the process or bring it to uh, a culmination of reaping if you've called me to be doing sowing? Randy, you've done a lot of work on this, the kinds of conversion experiences that people have. And I mentioned it earlier in, in your book, Unlikely Converts. I think it's just fascinating because I think it's something that a lot of Christians don't think about. And, and it's great to go to scripture and show, look, even in scripture, we people have these different you know, spiritual stories. It's not always someone answered all my questions and then I became a Christian or I hit rock bottom and there I turned and was a Christian friend or something like that. But oftentimes it's over this period of life and and, 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 you know, kind of slow awakening. Sometimes you just wake up one day and realize, you know, I think I really believe all this stuff mm-hmm. and it maybe took five or 10 years, you know, and, and, and I think that keeping that very natural organic aspect of conversion in, in your mind, when you're doing evangelism is empowering, just like you said, I mean, I think you know, I, I struggle with evangelism in the same way because I've heard this one paradigm for the conversation and, and yet, you know, that's not a paradigm that comes easily to me. Can you tell us a little bit about, a little bit more on your own study of talking to individuals who have, you know, proclaimed or reported a conversion to faith? Mm-hmm. You talk in your book, Unlikely Converts, you say, you know, they, they all tend to come, you divide it up into to gradually, people come gradually, they come communally. They come variously and it's supernatural, you know, and then and you kind of touch on all of those things. And then that should inform the way that we think about doing evangelism. Can you talk a little bit about just those stories that you were looking at? Mm-hmm. You that oh, I love it. Thank you for asking that. I was uh, in a PhD program at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and it was an inter- intercultural studies and uh, missions and evangelism was the emphasis and um, started brainstorming of ideas about um, possible dissertation. And I met with the head of the program and I said, what, what do we need research on? What does the field of missiology need research on? And the first thing he said was, well, we need, we need qualitative research where you'd go and interview maybe 40 or 50 people who have walked away from the faith and you know, find out why they, they gave up on the Christian faith. And I thought to myself, you know, I already have some struggles in the area of depression. There, there's probably not enough Prozac in the universe to help me get through that. I thought this dissertation is gonna be hard enough. Pick a top, you got anything else in your bag of tricks there? So he said, well, uh, on the other end of the spectrum, what we really need is we, we need to hear how people come to faith. And I went, ding, 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 ding. There we go. That's got my name on it. Because we've done a lot of sort of number crunching or quantitative research, how many people, where they're coming from, you know, uh, churches do study of, you know, over the course of this year, we baptize this number of people. So so we have some numbers, but I, I was really drawn to more of the qualitative side of let's sit down and interview people. And so I came up with this plan and they approved it where I would interview people for at least 45 minutes, um, but at the most an hour. So I was asking people for an hour and I was, I I contacted, we had to narrow down the field to a certain age group. And so I decided to do it all through campus ministry. And I contacted a whole bunch of different campus ministry people that I knew in a variety of ministries, not just crew, but InterVarsity and Navigators and a number of different places. 
And uh, is there anybody who's come to faith in the last two years? We also narrowed it down. We, we know from research that people tend to think about their stories in different ways after about two years. It, it's, not, it's not that they're distorting it. It's just they, they have a, a larger perspective. So we wanted a little bit more, more raw data, so to speak. So I interviewed 40 college students who had come to faith within the last two years. And it was beautiful. It was just wonderful. I would cry sometimes. They would cry sometimes. I would, I would come home and tell my wife about the stories that I heard that day. And um, I recorded them, had them transcribed, started looking for trends. But I think, I think more than anything else that just hit me was God draws people. God does the impossible. He raises people from the dead. And there were so many stories that began with a statement that made me think, oh, it's a, it's a good thing I know how their story ends, because if I were a betting man right now, I, I wouldn't put a lot of money on this one working. I mean, <laughs> they're just such amazing stories of people against all odds coming to faith and, and hearing what they thought was significant was, was just, oh, I just, I don't know, revealing, refreshing, all of those kind of things. Randy, I've gotten to sit in on some of your classes and uh, or listen in as a, a fly on the Zoom window as or uh, in some of your classes and and I've really loved them and I found them really encouraging. Also, kind of like as somebody who steers clear of evangelism because I know where my gift set is and it's not that. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, as as one with a collection of noise canceling headphones. Um, <laughs> But I, I was really encouraged and, and appreciated it. But, you know, that kind of method of like you allowing the other person to talk and ask questions. I mean, it's, it's risky and it's risky because you've got to, you know, if you move from like the I'm the expert in the room to, hey, let's just have a conversation about faith or spirituality or whatever it is. You know, how do you frame it um, would be interesting. But, you know, you've got to be able to say things like I don't know. and well, tell me, tell me more about this heresy that you think is really important. And uh, you know, all, all those kinds of, like, how do you navigate that? Um, how would you encourage those who, who aren't as comfortable in that area, like the, the convert, you know, the actual twists and turns of an ordinary conversation that can feel more like jazz than like a, like Mozart. How do you, how do you mm. navigate some of those kinds of things? Mm. Yeah. Well, um, I think it's really important, and I and I mention this a lot when I'm teaching. Um, evangelism occurs at this intersection of what people do and what God does, and and so there's a component that's just very natural or human or interpersonal. It's being a good listener, uh, watching people's facial expressions, asking questions, really really trying to get to know the person. You know, so it's very. I don't know, basic communication skills, which, by the way, all of us need lots and lots of improvement in. But then there's the, there's the supernatural side. There's, there, there's the supernatural side of God uh, opens up blind eyes. God draws people to himself. He makes his gospel irresistible. So it's, it's like you're engaged in two conversations at once. One is a very human interpersonal conversation with the other person. And the other one is praying, God, would you work? Would you, would you draw this person? Would you take anything that I say that's really stupid and somehow clarify it in their brain? 
Um, anything that I say that is wrong, strike them with temporary deafness. I mean, I, I don't know, but so 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 that our, what we're, we're relying on primarily is God's work in the person's life, rather than it's all up to me. I mean, that's crushing, and um, and by the way, probably makes you do a, a worse job. I mean, if you're feeling like this is all up to me, I, I just even thinking about that is 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 uh, paranoia inducing. <laughs> well, yeah, Randy. Like um, again, just a huge fan of everything you know you write and share. Um, your comments have reminded me at least you know these two things. One, uh, Michael Horton wrote that great book, you know, Ordinary, right? Mm-hmm. And I do wonder if one of the reasons why we have hesitated to uh, pursue evangelism is because we have like these radical views of what evangelism should look like. Um, like mm-hmm. we need to somehow be able to answer every question. And like you just said, do the supernatural work of converting the person, which obviously we can't do. Mm-hmm. And I think what you're suggesting is just have normal ordinary conversations, do what God has called us to do and see God do the supernatural. And so I think that even your approach is just very consistent with this, I think more biblical view of just living the ordinary Christian life. But also the other comment, and just in terms of pursuing dialogue, what I have found is that the reason why this is so important is it actually changes the dynamic so much when you engage a skeptic, an unbeliever in a dialogical way. When, when it comes up more like, um, uh, if I can just say apologetics, right? What ends up happening is it's more of a debate and like the agenda is to win the conversation. Yeah. Whereas when you really begin in a dialogical way and you say even audacious things like, well, actually, I don't know that, or that's a great point. It really does open a lot more doors than when you're in the mode of debating and trying to beat the person. Well, you know, um, um, there's something really intriguing about this, I think, from a, a theological perspective. When, when we try to win a debate where we're, we're feeling this need to be strong, to, to, to win, to have the answers, Um, When we engage in a conversation and listen and admit we don't know things and say, ooh, that's a good point, that kind of posture really reflects um, um, the essence of the gospel. Uh, The gospel is not, I'm a righteous person because look at my success. I won the battle against sin and temptation. No, the, the gospel is I'm, I'm a hopeless sinner desperately in need of salvation. And, and God has saved me. And so, so I should be very, very quick to admit failure and ignorance and I don't know. And, and I should also be very quick to acknowledge truth that the other person says or reflects because they're a person created in the image of God. Even if they're, they're an unsaved, unregenerate person, they're still created the image of God. So there's that theological uh, kind of framework of this. Um, on a very pragmatic or practical side, I do want to say, yes, these conversations are ordinary in the sense of this is not the way a bold evangelist would say it in a stadium like Billy Graham did. 
However, ordinary doesn't necessarily mean easy or comfortable or typical, because as soon as we start having a conversation about spiritual things going in the direction of the gospel, that's that's very non-ordinary. That you know, people, non-Christians don't talk about that <laughs> much at all. Or if they do, they talk about spirituality in a very, very different way than the Christian spirituality. So, so there is this, there is this need. Uh, I, I love, I love what Rico Tice has said in his training and in his book, Honest Evangelism. He said that so very often in a conversation, we have to be willing to, and the way he words it is, uh, cross the pain line. <laughs> I love that. You know, it's like you're having this conversation, like, this is very good, it's very nice, or whatever. And then they're sort of like, okay, I'm going to cross the pain line. This is going to be uncomfortable, probably for me and for them. Here we go. <laughs> warning, uh, warning. Right. Um, but so, you know, there is this ordinariness about it, and then there's this absolutely extraordinariness. I don't know if those are real words. No, I think that's that's excellent because you are there. There, there is this, um, there is this also incredible thing that's happening when a person becomes a follower of Christ, and when their heart is made alive, and in the midst of the the kind of ordinary slash maybe comfortable <laughs> there's also this kind of truly extraordinary beyond beyond the near horizon event that's taking place that kind of uh you know that 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 really is you know makes somebody like the apostle paul say behold new creation in the mm-hmm. middle of it you know and it's i love how you hold those two those two realities kind of in both hands and as you're thinking about evangelism um Another person who did a great job at uh, kind of holding those two realities in mind is C.S. Lewis, and he's the topic of your most recent work, uh, Mere Evangelism, subtitled, and this is to get us started because I want to hear about these insights, subtitled 10 Insights from C.S. Lewis to Help You Share Your Faith. And we've already kind of talked about, I think, the, 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 the insightful listener will have heard echoes of Lewis in the conversation so far, like in, in terms of pre-evangelism and, um, uh, you know, dialogue and, and sort of awareness of the, the, va- the variety of ex- human experience in these things. Can you kind of give us, give us kind of an overview? How did, how did you end up on Lewis uh, apart from teaching at the CS Lewis Institute? How did you end up on Lewis and how did you draw out, you know, what, what were the main insights that, uh, that you drew out of his work that helped mm. you with evangelism? Well, um, I'll start with, um, before I was a Christian, when I was in high school, th- this friend invited me to his church youth group, and uh, he invited a bunch of friends and simply said, um, it's really a lot of fun and the girls are cute. So that's why we went. Um, but it was this very strong gospel-believing church, and they presented the gospel in a number of places. And the guy who was the youth pastor encouraged me to read Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Well, I, I didn't. I wasn't going to read a Christian book. Um, but I went off to college, and a whole bunch of different circumstances started having me question and wonder. So I took Mere Christianity out of the library, the, the school library, and, uh, and I read it and was just grabbed a hold of by, by both Lewis's logic and rational argument and his engaging 
all of his many analogies, his imagination, his talk about disappointments actually being pointers to another world, that line of, um, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is I was made for another world. That sentence, combined with the logical, rational arguments of Jesus couldn't have been just a good teacher, uh, the kind of person who said the things Jesus said would either make him a lunatic or who he said he was. So, so those two things combined together just grabbed me before I was a Christian. And then I've just been reading Lewis for 40 years. And um, as I've done training in churches and seminaries about evangelism, the topic of pre-evangelism always came up and I needed to explain to people what that is and what, how does that look. And I just have felt for such a long time, Lewis did that better than anybody that I know. Um, lots of people argue for the need of it, um, but Lewis modeled it in Mere Christianity, the first four chapters of that book. And I, 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 so I kind of made this pitch to um, um, a publisher and they liked the idea. I, Lewis had to kind of fight for that approach when the BBC invited him to come to do a bunch of radio broadcasts. And by the way, the, the original plan was just five broadcasts. That's it, five broadcasts. We wanted to do five talks about the Christian faith. Well, Lewis said he was going to spend the first four about all sorts of stuff pre-evangelism. I mean, he, didn't, he, he did call it that, except that, of course, Lewis, Lewis used a Latin term that I, I don't know how to pronounce, proto, anyway, sorry. But, but so he starts with, how, how do we know anything? It's, you know, what, um, the very first line of the first broadcast is, we've all heard people quarreling. They're appealing to something. It's like, hey, that was my seat. Why did you take that? Or I shared with you, why don't you share with me? They're appealing to some sort of overarching standard and none of us live up to it. That was it. That was the first broadcast. That's all. And he said toward the end, or maybe the very end of the fourth of five weeks, he said, um, do not think I'm going faster than I really am. I'm still not within a hundred miles of the God of Christian theology. Now, can you imagine somebody invites him to do an evangelistic thing of five parts, and the first four are all about, well, how do we know anything, and how do we know anything about Jesus, and, and what, what could we possibly tell about Jesus? And, I mean, I'm sure that producers were thinking, he's not moving quick enough. He's not, you know, when is he going to close the deal? What happens if people walk outside and they get hit by a bus? A bus? And actually then, you know, people always say that, I think, what happens if they get hit by a bus? And I always wonder, where do these people live? People getting hit by <laughs> There's all these like, buses, runaway buses. Terrible. But I mean, during World War II, when Lewis was doing that, I mean, that was very real. They could walk outside and get hit by a bomb. And, and still, he thought there was such a need for the gradual, let's start where people are, and have them examine why why do they think um, there there is a standard? But by the way, it's the same line of argumentation in the book of Romans, chapters one and two. But Lewis wanted to to translate um, that theological truth to a person who might tune into a fifteen minute radio broadcast, mm -hmm. and that's what I think we need to become really really good at. Yeah, I love that 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 idea that informs like so many of what people, you know, some people call like emotional apologetics now, or I think of Francis Spuford's book, 
unapologetic, how in spite of everything, the, the gospel still makes a whole lot of emotional sense. But this idea that our emotions are kind of hinting at this deeper reality that we all experience and it's, and it's shared that we all have this kind of tip of the iceberg experience of life and some ignore it most maybe in the modern age kind of ignore that there are these signposts pointing beyond what's immediately around us you know charles taylor's the philosopher has done a lot on this in terms of the modern self you know and, and what he calls the imminent frame you know that we're all living as if it's just the experiential world that exists and yet there are these hints of something beyond it and lewis uh, both in his apologetic writing, but also just in the Chronicles of Narnia. You know, mm-hmm. I think just mm-hmm. in, as a as a kid, and I, you know, my sister, I, I wouldn't read them. I was a Tolkien man myself, uh, but my sister was a was a was a Lewis fan. I, I ended up reading Lewis too, but I remember her just coming in and and sort of laying out this imaginarium, you know, that he had created in Narnia and talking about it. And it was all about this kind of sense that things go beyond what we immediately experience. And that's a really powerful argument because it is something that every human who thinks, who feels as if their life has meaning, everyone experiences, everyone can relate to that. You know, you want to have a love, a love of your life because love is love feels bigger than you, doesn't it? It points to something beyond you, you know, where injustice points to something beyond just human experience. You you want to bring it into human justice. You know why that desire? It's so powerful, and uh, and he really is. I mean, I think you're right. I'm you know August Augustine kind of taps into these things a bit, and, and his but but in, in sort of recent hundred two hundred years or so, Lewis is really the one who's illustrating that and bringing that to the evangelistic effort. Well, you know, you you um, use the word argument there, and and Lewis was brilliant at argument. I mean, he he was trained rigorously by this atheist tutor who just who made him defend every sentence he said. So mm-hmm. he was very very good at <clears throat> logical rational argumentation. He he also knew we as people persons where we're not just brains we're not just logical argument receptors or or makers um we're emotional creatures we're relational creatures and uh so his narnia books um wanted to try to engage the whole person and and the fact that he 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 wove in so many different analogies and illustrations the the effect was on one hand, yes, you were convinced this is true, but at the other, the, on the at the same time, you were drawn to hope that it was true. It it wasn't just oh that makes sense. It was also the experience of oh that's really good. Oh, I hope that's true, and I I, I just think that idea of weaving those things together so that people. Well, here, um, he had all of these different um, analogies and illustrations in his writings of what becoming a Christian is like. So, yes, it's like, okay, you need to believe this. You need to understand this. You need to receive this. You need to accept this. Yes. But it was also like, here's what it feels like. Um, There's one place where he says, "We're, we're not just imperfect people in need of improvement. We're rebels who need to lay down our arms. Mm -hmm. 
Now, both rebels and laying down of arms, those are emotionally stimulating images of, oh, okay, I, I need to fall on my face. Um, and, and he just has so many of those illustrations. It is fun. So it's like turning full speed astern. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. Um, so, so I just think first he wanted to have people imagine what would it feel like to become a Christian before they engage with, okay, what do I need to believe in order to become a Christian? And for him, he just kind of wove them together because in his own mind, they were woven together. It wasn't like he was looking at two columns and let's say, how do I, how do I take an ingredient from there? And, you know, for him, they just kept weaving in and out because that's the way he, he thought. That, of course, intersects with your method as well, right? That, that, uh, that interpersonal, that conversational, that, you know, I, I, th- I loved how you put it earlier, the, the just being human together kind of approach gives you those kind those kinds of contact points it's 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 not just intellectual data or propositional content it's human experience that becomes the the mode and root of of these things and then the activity of god of course within that experience you know um one of the things i hope people take from the book or from when i get a chance to do training about this i I want to encourage people to try to come up with What's one analogy that captures some of the emotion for your experience of becoming a Christian? Either, either the moment of conversion or just what, what it's like today as a believer. What does it feel like? Um, and to share that as part of conversations that we have with people. Share that as part of our testimony because usually our testimonies are very much more historical and factual well i heard this message and i i didn't believe this but now i believe this and i understood this and yes that's part of it for sure i'm not I'm not trying to downplay that at all but i wonder what it'd be like to weave in and um i'm still working on this myself by the way because because any of the analogies i've come up with so far they're still a little too i don't know complex or something but um, I love uh, what when my wife gets a chance to share her story, she says, um, you, you know, we, we've all heard about um, pirates uh, looking for lost treasure. And they, they've heard that it's out there. They don't really know where it is, but they're searching for lost treasure. And they know that if, if they find it, it's just going to be really great. So it's like it's out there somewhere, but I don't know where. Now, now, just let that kind of fill you. It's like, yeah, I think we all do. There is something out there. And when we think we found it in, I don't know, a person or a thing or a possession or a job or whatever, and we think, okay, that's it. And then after a while, it dissipates and it's gone. It's like, no, that wasn't it. I still have to keep searching. So searching for something, I know it's there. I just don't know where. That's filled with emotion and and imagination and imagery. And I I just think we will connect with people in a way of finding com not, not just common ground, but common experience. And uh, those are some of the things that I think Lewis modeled for us and that we can we can we can incorporate into our own conversations even if we're not as brilliant as C.S. Lewis is, which none of us are. 
So you're giving us homework? I did, yes. And and I will be, since this is an academic institution, I will be grading it and I would like it um, written up, a double space, please, and submitted to my TA because I yeah. certainly don't want to read these papers. I, 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 so. So, so let's be honest, because this is an academic institution, your TA will be grading it. Yes, yes. And, and, and well paid, <laughs> too, I might add. <laughs> Well, Randy, thank you so much for coming on. We could, I, I could, I think we could delve into the the ocean of C.S. Lewis. There's a quote, I think, um, I think C.S. Lewis says it of Tolkien, but it's similar. Yeah, there, there's a, a story about a student coming out of Tolkien's office, and a student is coming out of out of Lewis's office. Is how it goes. The student's coming out of Lewis's office, descends to the bottom of the stairs, and there is J.R. Tolkien smoking a pipe waiting for his turn to kind of walk in and, and meet with his friend and the student comes out kind of frustrated and this, this conversation is just you know I, I don't understand what he means and and, and it's like I need five more meetings with him to kind of talk through whatever this the student had been wrestling with in class and Tolkien just looks at him and says you'll never get to the bottom of that man Mm. And, the, and the student walks off somewhat encouraged that J.R. Tolkien has the, you know, really has the same issue. I feel like we could talk about Lewis forever. There's there's mm. so much to discuss about him and it's so complicated and, and, and extremely interesting. Everybody else who's listening to this conversation, if this has piqued your interest in evangelism, I would encourage you to you know, consider taking a class next time. Dr. Newman is on campus. Uh, and if you can't do that, there's a lot of resources. He has a gift for writing and writing about practical issues. If you want to learn more about dialogical evangelism, he has a book called Corner Conversations, Engaging Dialogues About God and Life. If you're thinking about Thanksgiving and how are you going to talk to your family about this, he has a book on talking to friends and family members and how do you have those difficult conversations. It's called Bringing the Gospel Home. He's even written on how to engage with Jewish people. Uh, on the issue of uh, of Christ and how to do that in a way that's sensitive and, and aware of uh, the context of that conversation. But we do want to draw your attention to his most recent book, Mere Evangelism, 10 Insights from C.S. Lewis to Help You Share Your Faith. Go pick it up, read it. Uh, if this may be the first time you've read a practical theology book, but let me uh, let me encourage you to it because this is one of those things we are all called to do. Some have a, a, a natural gifting or a supernatural gifting in this regard, uh, but all of us are, are called to share the faith that we have and the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. So thanks for joining us for this conversation. Thank you, Randy, for uh, coming on with us today. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks. And for everybody else, we'll see you next week. Take care. Great. Yeah. Andy, that was great. Thank you so much. Oh, this was really fun. Was it was really good to be fun. with all three of you. Likewise. Good to be with you. This is uh how how is the book doing so far? Have you you had any word on it? You know, it's funny, everybody asks that. I I, I don't think I really know how to find out. Um <laughs>
<laughs> no, I, I'm in the same boat. My, I, I, I never hear. <laughs> well, so I mean, a year later. Well, I, I mean, you know, I will get, I'll get some kind of printout in December. Yeah. Uh, I think okay. that's the next time. Um, in more, um, oh, I'm trying to think of the right word, um, uh, mentally ill, paranoia, uh, uh, obsessive compulsive moments, I check my sales ranking on Amazon. And um, that's really not a good thing to do. But um, <laughs> it's like reading the comments, it's like reading the comments. Just don't ever read the comments. Rule. <laughs> well, actually, I find reading the comments to be sort of entertaining. Um, I mean, oh, I, I mean, in general, like on on blogs or, or social media or anything. No, you read. You can read the comments about your book. Here, here's uh, my. I, I thought on on Amazon, if the category was framed right, like if it's you, you're like the top one number one book on evangelism written in Nova about C.S. Lewis kind of thing. Yeah, that's right. I, I hope I would be number one, but um, there was one review for questioning evangelism quite a long time ago. It was, it was three out of five stars. And it said, uh, this book is pretty good, but it's not worth the hype. <laughs> 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 and I thought there's hype about Wait a minute. What? hype. How exciting. There's Tell hype. Me more about the hype. Yeah. I, <laughs> how come I haven't heard about this hype? But <laughs> that's great. Um, anyway.